0: Let's go to the Lord in prayer, and uh, we'll study today in Acts chapter 2. Father God, we are gathered here because everything, all of this is from you and for you. Our own lives are from you and for you, and we absolutely know that our our salvation, our restoration to you is from you. (laughs) and for you. We pray, God, that you would teach us again by the power of your Spirit, from the pages of your Word, for the purity of your church. Humble us and cause us to submit to you in Jesus' name, amen. Everybody's a theologian. R.C. Sproul accurately quipped that everybody's a theologian. Theology at its core is thinking about God. Even those who vehemently and arrogantly proclaim that there is no God are thinking theologically. They either don't want God to exist because they don't want to be accountable to him, or they wrongly conclude that if God is not the kind of God that they desire him to be in the making of their own minds, he therefore must not exist. Everyone is doing theology. That theology is bad or good or somewhere in between, but everybody's a theologian. Particularly those of us who submit to the Word of God as the authority because it's from God himself, we submit to the authority of God's Word to tell us where we may gain eternal life and how we can live rightly with God. So we're always studying what God teaches in these pages First in the immediate context, and then by comparing Scripture with Scripture, that context of the whole counsel of God. We're always doing theology, and we're always clarifying that theology in careful articulation of what the Bible teaches, which we call doctrine. Our articulation of the theology we find in God's Word is what we call doctrine. This is a longer intro than I usually have, so just bear with me. Neither we nor our Christian brethren who differentiate by our doctrines have a corner on perfect doctrine. Church history has proven that we're always reforming, always seeking to grow in understanding and in faithfulness, and always seeking to more accurately articulate a true theology according to what God reveals about himself and his will for us. Therefore, older theology isn't automatically better. Unless by older, we're going all the way back to Scripture itself. The Reformers made great strides in moving toward more biblical doctrine, which we've come to codify in Christian history as the five solas. Do you know what those are? Scripture alone as authoritative, Christ alone, who accomplished everything necessary for salvation, faith alone. As the only means to receive redemption, grace alone, not because of anything in ourselves or of ourselves, but only by God's unmerited favor and the glory of God alone, who is the only one worthy to be worshiped and revered and given the credit that he is due. I bring that up because even some of the very reformers that helped toward this valuable end, continued in a doctrinal tradition that we will argue today is incorrect. Baptismal regeneration. More on that in a little bit. So it's essential that we do the hard work of having our thinking about God grounded in careful study and right thinking from his word. Our text for today is Acts chapter two, and especially when we look at verse 38, it will require of us careful study and deep theological thinking. So where are we again? After Peter preached the first Christian sermon at Pentecost, this is what happened next. I think the screen is going to show verse 37. I'm going to back up to verse 36. So have your Bibles open with me. This is how he finished his sermon. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Our passage begins with, when they heard this, they were pierced. What is the this that they had just heard? Peter had laid out some key elements of the gospel. When we talk about the gospel, we may notice a couple of things that Peter didn't really have to do that we usually do. In our evangelism, Peter did not have to convince his Jewish audience of God's holiness or convince his audience that God had created all things for his own glory and according to his own purposes, nor did he have to convince this Jewish audience that they were sinners in need of forgiveness. What he did convince them of is that they had put their Messiah to death on a cross But that this Jesus of Nazareth rose again because he is Lord, so death couldn't hold him, Peter said, and that this Jesus is seated in authority on high because he is Lord. Peter has convinced this Jewish audience that the the pouring out of the Spirit then is evidence that they, the disciples, were eyewitnesses of the risen, exalted, and ascended Christ. Peter has convinced them that the last days have come upon the earth and that soon to come is the day of the Lord when Christ returns to judge his enemies. The reality of the gospel that Peter declares to them ends up being to them like a stab in the heart. That's what this means when it says they were cut to the heart, they were pierced. So they asked Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter answers by telling them, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Wait. That's Acts chapter 16. That's what Paul and Silas give as the answer to the Philippian jailer later in this text. Peter actually answers by saying, Repent and be baptized. I mean, it's a good thing Peter's an apostle a good thing that we know Luke's text in Acts is the inspired word of God, because otherwise we'd be saying things like, Peter, you just encouraged a line of doctrinal thinking that will take the church literally centuries for us to break free from, and then only some of us. Okay, so we know better than to do that. We don't blame God's word. We blame ourselves for our... Our ineptitude in understanding and our ineptitude in articulating what it teaches. Given the situation and his audience, and then comparing with other calls to conversion, what should we understand that Peter means here? A.T. Robertson, one of the foremost Greek scholars of his generation, argued that you can't conclude from... The grammar in this text whether or not baptism is required for salvation, but rather that your theological conclusions drawn from other texts will inform what you think Peter intends to say here. I think he's right. But we're not completely flying blind in this context, and we we certainly have help from other passages in Acts. So, first of all, Peter's sermon has been leading them toward whose name to call upon for salvation. Do you remember that in verse 21? Look at Acts 2, 21. He ends his quote of Joel with, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And then he will begin to describe who is the Lord, Jesus of Nazareth, whom you crucified and God raised and exalted, and he is ascended and seated at the right hand of majesty on high. So the question to be answered here is less what's required for salvation and more whose name do we call upon? You'll notice in the first half of verse 41, so those who received his word, those who believed this message, were baptized. The answer Peter gives then in verse 38 does include a call to action, repent and be baptized. And it's for each individual but it's based upon a response of calling on the name of Jesus Christ to save them, who is able to forgive their sins. As a result, they will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So what Robertson really is getting at is that we, we interpret it this way and not that baptism is required for regeneration, for salvation, because our theology has informed us that no works of our own at all can save us. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Martin Luther found in studying the book of Romans that Paul conclusively clarifies that righteousness attributed to us can only come by faith in Jesus Christ. It's God's righteousness we receive, not our own righteousness. Even faith, Paul will tell the Ephesian church, is not our work but God's own work, his own gracious work in us. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. Salvation by grace through faith is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Or note, too, that we have in our Bibles an entire letter to the Galatians essentially written to contradict a false teaching that any work whatsoever that might be required in addition to the gift of faith would make it false. Faith alone. We could add baptism into that category. Similarly, we're also inclined to look at the other occurrences in Acts and give them explanatory weight over against what it might sound like Peter says here. The very first of them, as we said, came in verse 41, that those who received his word believed in the gospel were then baptized. Then also listen to Peter's words in Acts chapter 3 verses 19 and 20 when he's speaking again in Solomon's portico and preaching there. He says, repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the lord here again he gives repentance as a condition or to be synonymous with saving faith but baptism isn't mentioned at all perhaps what takes place in acts 10 is even more clear with peter when he is told by the lord to go and preach to the household of cornelius and listen to what happens in acts 10:44 While Peter was still saying these things, that is, preaching the word of the Lord to them, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard it. So after this takes place and the evidence of the Spirit is already present, Peter then says in verse 47, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ after having believed in Jesus as Lord. Just one more example, and of course, there are still others. Back to that episode we spoke of earlier in Acts chapter 16, where God miraculously freed Paul and Silas from prison, but they remained behind so that the Philippian jailer wouldn't kill himself. And when he asked how to be saved, they answered, Acts 16, 31, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You and your household. This would have been a clear opportunity to stipulate that baptism is required for salvation, but it was not included. Instead, after preaching the gospel, the word of the Lord to him and to his household, they are then baptized, which we are left to presume took place because they had already done exactly what Paul said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. We can argue, then, that the preponderance of evidence in Scripture which informs our doctrine seems clear enough to us, and that the other examples in Acts indicate that baptism doesn't save you, but is an act of obedience, a public demonstration declaring the fact of one's belief in Christ alone as the only Lord who can save. So Peter's call to repentance is one and the same as calling on Christ by faith. There are two sides of the same coin. Repentance is turning from sin and self-trust, and faith is throwing yourself upon the mercy of God and trusting in him alone. So the New Testament will often use one or the other in speaking of what needs to take place without necessarily using them both, but both are undoubtedly meant. And then... Baptism is a public display of the sincerity of that faith and repentance. Well, how might we apply this in terms of whether or not baptism is necessary or required? Is baptism necessary? Careful how you answer. Baptism is necessary because we have been saved, baptism is not necessary in order to be saved. Bob Deffenbaugh says. Baptism is necessary because we have been saved. Baptism is not necessary in order to be saved. Does baptism save you? No. Is it required? Yes. Because it is a matter of obedience. Steve Cole says, the idea of an unbaptized Christian is foreign to the apostles because they assume that every true believer would be an obedient believer. And if the Lord says in his commission to his disciples, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and I am with you always to the end of the age. What's in there? Baptizing them. Baptism is actually required for our obedience. By the way, if that's convicting to you in any way because you haven't been baptized as a believer in Jesus Christ, we would love to talk to you about that in the next couple weeks, and we'd be excited to have another baptism service here with our church family. Okay, now we finally can continue... Every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Every one of you. Each individual person must decide either to respond in faith and repentance or continue in their rejection and rebellion against God. In the name of Jesus Christ. Again, on whom should they call for salvation? Who is the Messiah and Lord? Peter will soon hereafter be before the council, the Sanhedrin, when he and John are being threatened to stop preaching, and he will say, this Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. And in Acts 4.12, he continues, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The name of Jesus Christ. Not meaning that a name itself has some sort of mystical power. No, his name means his person, the Christ, the Lord. Jesus is the only means of salvation. For the forgiveness of your sins. How does this forgiveness occur? How can it occur? Do you understand the New Testament's teaching of the great exchange that happens because of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ? The great exchange is that our Lord Jesus Christ, who lived perfectly, unlike you and unlike Adam and unlike Israel and unlike Moses and unlike Noah, none of them could be perfect. Jesus lived a perfect life so that he could be a perfect sacrifice, and he took our sin upon himself. So the perfect son of God takes your sin upon himself. And because he died to pay the penalty for that sin and satisfy the justice of God and the righteous wrath of God against sin, he takes your sin on himself. And if you come to Jesus Christ alone to save you, do you know what the exchange is? He pays your debt and gives you his righteousness. And now God looks at you, and instead of seeing the sinful person that you indeed are, the person who is incapable of any level of righteousness that could possibly restore you to God, and now he looks on you, and he sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ, that's justification by faith alone, the great exchange, your sin for the righteousness of Jesus Christ. The path to the cross is paved with your sin, and the path away from the cross, is paved with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And if in true sincerity you call on Jesus in faith and repentance, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's what Peter tells them. As we said previously, and and we will continue to see throughout Acts, this isn't a guarantee that the Holy Spirit coming to indwell will always manifest itself himself, by filling us to perform miracles as was the case here or was the case for sure in the lives of the apostles, even going forward. But we can have assurance that the Holy Spirit resides in us as a permanent confirmation of our salvation. That's not all that he does, but that is likely the point that Peter is making here. You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And to whom does this offer apply as we continue in the text? For the promise is for you, verse 39, and for your children and everyone whom the Lord our God calls. What's the promise to which Peter is referring? It's the promise of forgiveness through Jesus Christ, to be restored to God, even though you know you don't deserve it and thereby receiving the Holy Spirit. That's the promise. And who is it for? It's for you. Again, Peter makes this personal. It's for you and for your children, for your immediate descendants, and for generations to come, and it's for all who are far off. Peter is probably referring here to Jews geographically and Jews spiritually further from God. That's probably who Peter is referring to, right? He's preaching to Jews in Jerusalem, and we, we know later in Acts chapter 10 that Peter still has to learn the lesson that Jesus was teaching them that he is the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham that through him all the nations of the world will be blessed. And so salvation, the reader of Luke and Acts is hearing Peter also say undoubtedly to the Gentiles also, to all who are afar off. This salvation extends to all peoples of the earth. In fact, everyone, and that everyone is qualified this way. Speaking of theology, (laughs) deep thinking, everyone whom the Lord our God calls. Let me ask you another hard theological question. Whose will is ultimate in salvation? Whose will is ultimate in salvation? Salvation is all of God and only by his grace. He does use the secondary cause of taking our spiritually dead and stony hearts and giving us a heart of flesh that has the ability to beat spiritually so that we desire to respond to him. And from our perspective, to that end, we are responsible. But when you rightly understand our depravity and our inability and that salvation is all grace, then you begin to grasp the beginning of the mystery that God is ultimately sovereign in our salvation. The apostle John records Jesus as having stated quite plainly himself in John chapter 6, verse 37, all that the Father gives me. Will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. God's will is ultimate, even as our wills are conformed by Him to respond in repentance and faith. And this verse also shows that once God has done that, He will not undo it. I can't earn my salvation, and I can't lose it. God is ultimate in salvation. But God's will being ultimate in salvation doesn't stop Peter from preaching, doesn't stop Peter from, in fact, urging his audience to respond. And with many other words, the text says in verse 40. And he says, Save yourselves. Knowing what you know of Peter in the Gospels, do you think Peter said this with no passion or drama? Save yourselves. Peter evidently continued in a much longer sermon with further evidence and persuasion. Luke here says with integrity that he has given us a summary of the most critical aspects of what Peter preached, which was a common practice for historical record of speeches. But speaking of persuasion, Peter can still say without being manipulative, and without giving people credit for what God must sovereignly do in them, Peter can still say, save yourselves from this crooked generation. There is a healthy urgency in our evangelism, assuming that we are witnessing it all to those around us. And Peter can speak here of the present generation of Jews as particularly crooked, who have not only missed but rejected and killed their own promised Messiah. The last days have begun. Save yourselves from the judgment coming in the great day of the Lord. You too must be warning people of God's judgment that is coming upon our sin and that they must repent and call on Christ alone to save them, granting them forgiveness from the consequences of sin and restoring them to God. We come to verse 41. What resulted that day? Let me ask another question. What happened, was it because of Peter's preaching or because of the presence and work of the Holy Spirit, or was it because of God's drawing people or all of the above? Yes, all of the above. God was effectually calling, and he did this through the power of his Holy Spirit. And God chose to use Peter's preaching of the gospel, which Peter did obediently, also in the power of the Holy Spirit. And again, what resulted that day? Those who received his message were baptized about 3,000 souls. So now they number about 3,125. Remember there were 125 of them? How God was preparing these people in Jerusalem, many of whom had been present for the... Why am I drawing a blank? What was the, what was the uh, Passover? Woo! You guys didn't, you're no help at all. <laughs> so, first for Passover, and now a couple of months later at Pentecost, they have been present for all of these things, and word has been passed around. Josh McDowell, and, and now an updated version of, of his book more than a carpenter with his son, Sean McDowell, has this this section in it that is so amazing that, that describes how if there had been any proof whatsoever that they could produce the dead body of Jesus, would not have all the detractors done so. They could not produce the dead body of Jesus. Why is that? Because exactly as the apostles and the disciples with them said, they had seen the risen Christ and he was ascended. And all these people had been hearing about that. So when Peter declares to them, you killed your Messiah, but he is risen, he is the Lord, he's coming back, you better get ready, 3,000 people responded to that. And as an outward public display of the internal working of God to cause them to respond in repentance and faith, they were baptized. Imagine the excitement. We were just talking about having a baptismal service here, right? Imagine the excitement and the logistics of baptizing 3,000 people in a single day. That would be fun and complicated. But Craig Keener explains, the temple mount had many immersion pools that worshipers used to purify themselves ritually. Mass baptisms could thus be conducted quickly. We have 3,000 people being baptized that day. Bob Deffenbaugh also reminds us, we're meant to see why Jesus told his apostles to wait for the promise of the Father. The Great Commission can never be fulfilled in the power of the flesh. It is the coming of the Spirit that precedes the miraculous growth of the gospel in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and among the Gentiles, the working of the Spirit of God. This great number of conversions was also unique and shouldn't be our expectation of what is normative, okay? Just let that sink in. Shouldn't be our expectation of what is normative to have thousands and thousands of people necessarily coming to saving faith at one time. However, you may recall other moments in history where great revivals have occurred by the powerful working of the Holy Spirit. Where does all of this leave us for today? What Peter is getting to, and we need to remember, is that we must call upon Jesus for salvation. Peter's public proclamation began due to questions and confusion concerning the phenomenon of these Galileans all praising God in people's native languages and the power of the Spirit. And while his sermon then addresses that, Peter does so in the context of answering a more important question that they should be asking Who is the Lord to call upon for salvation? Jesus of Nazareth, who is the Christ, the Messiah. And he is Lord, whom they crucified, but who is risen, who is reigning on high, and who is soon returning. There can be nothing more important in this life than responding to this message of salvation. God will get all the credit, just as he deserves, for graciously rescuing you. But we urge you, save yourself from the just judgment that is sure to come and maybe coming soon. Repent of loving sin and trusting in yourself. And throw yourself upon the mercy of God through faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. If you do that, God himself will make you his own child. God himself will give you the gift of the Holy Spirit as a deposit to ensure the completion of this salvation at the last day. Christians, we must be prepared to give an answer to the question, what shall we do? What do we do? What do we do about the condition we find ourselves in because of our sin and the holiness of God and our complicity in the death of God's Messiah How can that sin debt be forgiven? So, we too should pursue obedience in testifying that Jesus is Lord and sharing the gospel. And we too have the Spirit powerfully working in us to grant us courage and clarity. Is that what you need? To share the gospel of Jesus Christ, to lean on the power of the Holy Spirit, to give you boldness. The Apostle Paul even prayed or asked other believers to pray for him for boldness and for clarity. And it is the Holy Spirit who will effectually bring others to God, whom the Lord our God is calling to himself. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we can rest assured from your word that Jesus is who he said he was, that he is alive and that he is reigning and that he is soon returning. We thank you that Jesus does what he promises to do, which is, God, that you are restoring people to yourself through faith in Jesus Christ, by the power of your Holy Spirit. We thank you that many of us here can have complete confidence knowing that although we did not save ourselves, we are the people whom you have chosen to proclaim your excellencies and to the praise of your own glory and goodness. Help us, Father, to be faithful, to share Jesus Christ with the people you have placed in our paths. And we entrust the outcome to you, knowing that you, Father, are sovereign, and that whomever you call will come. In Jesus' name, amen.